You're listening to episode 14 of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I'll share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome, EasyMade Nation. Today we have a great podcast. It will be a two-part podcast with Eric Volbrecht. So Eric is a lawyer from Axon Lawyer. And uh, if you are not following him, if you are not following his blog, so I will really recommend it. We'll uh, talk about that during the episode. So Eric will talk to us about uh, the journey for the EU MDR, the EU IVDR. Uh, he will be really open with us, be really frank and honest. So it will be really a great podcast for you to listen. It will be two parts. So we have the first part uh, this week and the next part will be next week. So episode 15. And today I want also to ask you uh, if you have subscribed to my podcast. Uh, it would be really a, a great support for me if you are subscribing to the podcast. Uh, also on YouTube, if you are subscribing to the YouTube channel for those that are uh, watching that on YouTube. Uh, and also to provide a review or some likes to be also really uh, great for me. It takes few seconds or few minutes for you, but it will be really helpful for me. So thank you for that. Okay, let's jump in now and listen to Eric. Hello, EasyMade Nation. So here is Munir Lazuzi uh, with a special guest who is Eric Volbrecht. Uh, and I wanted really to invite Eric to our, uh, our session, our episode, our podcast, just to help us understand more about the MDR, the IVDR, all, the, all what is happening now on the background with also some, something about the Brexit and about also the implant files. So I have Eric here. So hello, Eric. I'm Munir. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. So I'm really a big fan of Eric because he has he has a blog uh, so called I think Medical Device Legwalls. Uh, so uh, on this blog, you are really open. You are really discussing openly uh, all the topics related to uh, medical devices. Uh, and uh, so we can maybe talk about that. But first, I want you, if possible, to introduce yourself, introduce your company, and then we'll know more about you. Okay. Well, uh, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Uh, people often mistake me for a consultant. It's <laughs> usually terribly annoying when I'm uh, negotiating uh, uh, an engagement with a big company, usually big uh, US companies, because they send me uh, an agreement for a cupcake vendor. And then I'm like, no, sorry, I'm an external lawyer with legal privilege and, and controlled by the Bar Association and law and such. So I'm really not a widget supplier. But um, yeah, I've been lawyer in devices, I would say for about 15 years now. I've been lawyer for about 21 years. Yeah, actually, last Friday, I celebrated my 21st holiday as a lawyer. Holiday? And, Great. And before that, I was briefly at the European Commission uh, in the, uh, in the uh, competition uh, directorate, which was also uh, very interesting. But I also found out uh, that I'm uh, not civil servant uh, material. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been working with my own law firm for slightly over seven years now. Uh, it's a it's a niche law firm in life sciences. So we do um, we do uh, anything in the life science space. So we do pharmaceuticals, uh, biotechnology, medical devices, and uh, food. And within the firm, uh, uh, I'm primarily responsible for the pharmaceuticals and medical technology. Uh, uh fields so to speak and we work quite internationally i would say that that um yeah i have clients from all over the place the majority of my clients is uh, is uh, is dutch actually so i work for a lot of the big uh, i would say i work for a really substantial part of the medtech europe members and cosier members and um, yeah and also for a lot of smaller companies and, and I write this blog. I've been writing uh, the medical devices legal uh, blog for about, I don't know, about eight years, something yes. like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really well read. I think I have about 6,000 people almost subscribing by email. And then I don't know how many just read it by RSS feed or something. But uh, yeah, I have a lot of good response and it's, it's always fun to write. And yeah, like you say, people tell me that they appreciate it for the for the candid uh, candid views I express on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's what I say. So if you don't follow Eric on his blog, I will really encourage you to go and to read it. Uh, it's why also I invited you because I was following you uh, during all the journey for the MDR, IVDR, mm -hmm. and what I read was making me laugh sometimes because it was more like. Uh, really open, really honest, really transparent. It's like seeing behind the curtain uh, and not having some of those news that were more aseptic saying, yeah, everything is fine, <laughs> everything is okay. So it was more here. Are you serious about what we are doing here? So it's it's really uh, something that is really uh, interesting and I really like that. But I also some, saw the comments of people and they were also enjoying that. So it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, sometimes it's really like a soap. Eh? I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I can, can see how lawmaking works and sometimes yeah you just see people uh, really make it into uh, into a play or an opera almost so then i think there's nothing wrong with uh, calling that out that's well, great i think it's really great but it's it's not usual if i can say having some people uh, talking uh, like that openly is really not usual okay uh eric um yeah as as i want to make this environment a bit more uh, relaxed uh, for people that will watch this on YouTube, you will see that Eric is wearing uh, the consultant or <laughs> lawyer <laughs> style. Uh, so, Eric, is would it okay for you if you can remove the consultant now? Yeah, yeah, because uh, I think we talked about uh, should you wear also the the black robe, if I can say the black lawyer robe. But I think it was. Uh... I could have worn my lawyer robe. With it's actually I'm obliged to wear that in court. Otherwise, uh, I'll be kicked out, and the judge won't listen to arguments. So yeah, they will think that you are a consultant. So they want to <laughs> not you there. <laughs> never do that. No. So is it okay for you if you remove your tie? That will make it a bit more like uh, relaxed. And that, uh, yeah, yeah. Have people following a discussion like uh, like we are really here, a bit colleagues. I don't have a tie, so it's uh, it's fine for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've been secretly wearing my jeans here. Yeah, great. <laughs> I was doing what news uh, news uh, readers do as well. Just uh, I don't I don't do the yeah. 
I uh, I usually wear uh, quite informal uh, clothes in the office. Actually, I I changed uh, from my uh, Nike hoodie into this, uh, especially for this. <laughs> for this. <laughs> okay, so um, I wanted to ask you some some few questions just to know you more. As I said, I know you just through your blog, mm -hmm. uh, reading all what you are you are saying. I was about to meet you once, but I never I was not uh, able to do that during a conference in in Munich. Uh, in Germany, but uh, I missed you because you were on the second day and I arrived on the first day only. So, uh, but yeah, to know you more, I just wanted to ask you some few questions. So, um, one of the question is, uh, what would have been the job of your dream if you were not a lawyer? Ah, currently, I would definitely be a science fiction writer. Oh, really? Yes, totally. So, what kind of science fiction books or things you like, or maybe movies or series? Well, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, my son went to uh, Alita Battle Angel uh, yesterday and he was really enthusiastic about it. It's a movie I, I'd also like to see. Okay. So I really like, I, I like the old cyberpunk stuff like uh, Blade Runner. Uh, Philip K. Dick, for example, is one of my favorite uh, science fiction uh, writers. But I also, I'm very, uh, yeah, I like space opera. I'm a total sucker for space opera and... Uh, And also uh, all the all the weird alien stuff, speculation about what aliens can be. For example, the Alistair Reynolds uh, universe. There's this. He's a really really good British uh, science fiction writer that that yes. writes sets sets the scene for a fantastic universe with really mysterious alien civilizations that never show up. Basically, uh, that that are sort of hiding, but you but you know they're there. Okay. So kind of stuff I, I really love and I could totally write about myself. Actually, I would if I were not alone. I think you will be great. As I said, on your blog, you are really writing very well. So I think it would be really great. So if you do that, don't forget to tell me. I would really like to, to see it and to, and to read it. Um, okay, the second question is, uh, how many languages are you speaking? Because mainly the, I see on your blog that you are using a lot of different languages for your wording once one title was in french i can't remember the title but uh, i was asking myself is he speaking french because i'm, I'm french also so i right, say right. oh yeah well uh, it, it depends a bit on how you define speak uh, i would say i'm proficient in six languages and i can uh, i have passive uh, passive capacities in in about three to four more okay So, so you can and, tell the which ones? Yeah, yeah, sure. Dutch is uh, Dutch is my mother tongue. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, of course. Well, then then I speak English. Um, I speak uh, French. I lived in Brussels for a long time, and I also worked at a uh, at a Belgian uh, law firm uh, there for some time, uh, where I partly had to work in French also. Okay. Um, I uh, I speak. I'm fluent in German. Uh, I'm fluent in Swedish, uh, and I'm fluent in Spanish. And then I can passively understand and read Norwegian and Danish. And also my Italian is, yeah, pretty okay passively. I mean, I can chit chat a bit in Italian, but that's about it. And I used to speak passable Czech, but that has sort of gone away. Uh, I can I can read Latin, 
And also, uh, yeah, if Portuguese people speak slowly, then I can also sort of figure out what they're uh, what they're saying and. Really? It's really amazing. And when I'm hearing that, I say, have you learned that at school or it was during your experience uh, you had to learn that because you moved or? Uh, no, I mean, Swedish, uh, Swedish was, uh, I've lived there. Uh, oh. German was uh, a girlfriend. Okay. Uh, Czech was a girlfriend. Uh, let's say uh, Italian, I've picked up on holiday. Uh, Spanish just interests me as a language, so I try and develop it uh, all the time. Um, yeah, if you speak Italian and, and, and Spanish and Portuguese, it's not that difficult. And the same yeah. with Norwegian and Danish, that if you're fluent in Swedish, then Norwegian and Danish are a small step. It's true. I'm trying now to, I mean, to learn. I, 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 learn, I speak now uh, German, but uh, it's uh, really difficult. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I saw a sentence saying, life is too short to, to learn German. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's true, but uh, it's one thing that is not really a motivating sentence to, to continue to be fluent on this language. But uh, yeah. Okay. Um, just one thing. So I wanted to do always that to a lawyer. You know, you see that on the movie. So I want to, to see if it's working with you. Um, I have a sentence for you. So can you raise your right hand? <laughs> okay. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Oh, that depends. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll go now through we'll go now through the serious part, if I can say, and talk about uh, all the journey for the EUMDR. And uh, I'm sure that you, yeah, you will have, um, um, yeah, you have good stories, if I can say, talk about that. Uh, as I said uh, to uh, you, so I followed you when you started to um, to to talk or to follow the discussion about the new. UMDR, IVDR, and I wanted to ask you what what is your I'm just going to move out of the sun, uh, Munir, because no I'm problem. sitting right in the sun. No problem. So here we go. Right. So just wanted to ask, what is your feeling, or how was your feeling while you were following all this journey, while you were doing all your blog? Uh, so can you tell us more from the inside exactly what yeah, was your thinking? Ah, yeah. Okay, well, of course, I'm on the relative inside though, because I was never, never with uh, actually with a competent authority or with the Commission or with the uh, uh, with the European uh, European Parliament when the MDR and the IVDR was made. But um, yeah, I mean, what I can say is that, um, and it's 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 maybe it's a bit of a, a cynical perspective, but uh, let's see. Here we go, because. Um, I think if you uh, if you look at the the, the, the political discussion, uh, the MDR and the IVDR were really instruments to uh, solve a political problem. And the political problem was that we had the PIP breast implant scandal, and we had the metal on metal hips scandal. Uh, now the question is. I mean, for me as a lawyer, do you need new laws to solve that problem? And if you look at it from a really technical perspective, the answer is no. What I think we needed was uh, a lot better cooperation between uh, competent authorities in Europe, which the Commission also started with the uh, uh, 
joint immediate action plan immediately after the um, uh, after these uh, scandals. And what you also need, I think, is uh, uh, you need a more harmonized uh, and maybe refined approach to what clinical data do we want to see for what specific devices? Because that was the problem with the metal or metal uh, hips. Uh, actually, I mean, people cry. Uh, uh, there's, there was a big outcry over that. But in the end, I mean, uh, the design of the hips as such was good. The only problem was that uh, they uh, didn't perform over time as you would like. So the um, question is, what could we have done to prevent that from happening, right? How could we have seen at the moment that um, you, uh, uh, that you were dealing with a device that could become potentially problematic in the future? And basically, with the instruments that were there in the law at the time, all of these things could have been addressed. If you look at PIP, PIP was a case of fraud. Huh? It was a company that deliberately hit uh, illegal activities. Yeah. Now, that's something you're not going to solve with, uh, let's say, stricter regulation. Yeah, because people can still do that, can still make fraud. It's not like this that will provide uh, avoid this. Exactly. I mean, it's it's like with tax legislation. People will always try and launder money and commit tax fraud, no matter what you do with legislation. So the only thing you could actually do was have um, better surveillance. So how could you have had better surveillance? for example, by competent authorities, because this was also the kind of fraud that a notified body could not have spotted under the normal circumstances. If you look at the, the what the Court of Justice uh, said, uh, the European Court of Justice in the in the uh, case against uh, Tuve Rheinland that was brought, yeah. the European Court said, hey, there was basically no reason for Tuve Rheinland to expect anything uh, towards, so there was also no reason for them to dig deeper than they did. And that's that's the whole thing. Uh, if you decide that you're going to outsource state authority to grant certificates and to do surveillance audits to, uh, to yeah, basically commercial uh, institutions, then you also have to accept that they don't act as police. Because the only thing a notified body can do uh, is basically say, okay, well, um, I have a suspicion that uh, something is not completely right, so I can ask for documentation. But what a competent authority with policing power can do is say, okay, I don't trust what's happening here. I think I suspect something is going on in this other building. And I can say, show me this other building. I want to look inside. And if the company says no, then you can say, okay, uh, I want to go inside of this building, no matter what you think of it. And even when, and this problem was partly addressed by requiring notified bodies to do unannounced audits, but okay. even unannounced audits are not going to um, solve the problem of a company that's going to, that is dedicated to doing specific fraud. Because you still know that as long as I keep my activities out of sight of the notified body, they can do all the unannounced audits as uh, as they like. But as long as I know where they're going to do the unannounced audits, because they're not allowed to go elsewhere, then I can still uh, 
have a good chance of keeping this hidden. And yeah. that, is, that is something that I see as a lawyer uh, is that um, the, the way the system is set up is that uh, yeah, basically European competent authorities are getting an enormous bang for their buck. Pharmaceuticals are concentrated. These are outsourced to the market. But then you also see that that means that the competent authorities um, yeah, are really thinly uh, staffed for medical devices. In the Netherlands, for example, where I live, uh, at some point uh, I calculated with uh, with a client that there was a difference of almost a factor 100 in resources committed to pharmaceutical products oversight and medical devices oversight at the competent authorities. So, I mean, you get what you pay for. And, uh, and and what I can see, and I think that that sort of closes the loop, is that with these scandals, basically the politicians discovered that medical devices have a role in the healthcare system that everybody sort of overlooked, and that they have a much more important role in healthcare than uh, people were willing to uh, uh, yeah, invest in regulation for. So they, they open the, it, does this open the eyes of regulators or governments? Does this um, put more highlight on the, the industry? Yeah, I think so, because what you see is that, uh, I mean, uh, in, 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 phases, in, in cases like this, you always uh, you sort of uh, go through this whole, uh, let's say, a U-shape where people first start to, uh, yeah, it's a bit like uh, this, it's this, this, this uh, famous model of, uh, of, of people accepting, uh, accepting losses. It's first they have to recognize that something is wrong, and then they have to start to, uh, to know what is wrong, and then at the bottom of the U they accept it, and then things can go up again. Well, and, and you saw this whole classic U Thing happening with people in the European Parliament saying pacemakers are regulated like water kettles because they both have the CE mark. Uh, you have to do uh, you have to do randomized clinical trials with pacemakers, which is totally nuts from uh, from a clinical uh, perspective. Yeah. Would you like a placebo pacemaker, for example, or will it give you a placebo uh, hip implant or something? So you saw a lot of misunderstanding as well. And um, yeah, so but but what you see is that the uh, the politicians, uh, yeah, they came up with new laws. And the problem with po with politics, pardon my French or pardon my Dutch, I should rather say, is that you do not need a diploma to be a politician. So that also means that you don't need to really understand what you're doing, and that is a problem because you see that, that there's a lot of weird stuff going on with legislation and it's not always motivated by, uh, by the best, let's say, expert views on things. And in medical devices, most of the experts were in industry, but everybody distrusted industry at the moment, at, at that time. So it's, it's difficult for industry to say, well, maybe it's a good idea if you go this way or that way because they were really in the corner of uh, shut up because you're naughty. So everything you say is unbelievable. And yeah, so that was, that was, that was a thing. And then we had all these member states that all had very different views on what renewed medical devices legislation should look like. 
Now you had the French that said, oh, we need a medical devices branch for the European Medicines Agency. And we would rather die than accept reprocessing of single-use devices. Okay. <laughs> and you had the Germans that said, well, we have all these uh, excellent notified bodies that are completely beyond uh, reproach, uh, that are doing a fantastic job. And by the way, we have good experiences with uh, reprocessing of single-use devices. So what are you, uh, what are you making such a fuss about? And and that was that was just really uh, yeah that was sort of completely diagonally uh, opposed. And then you have all the other member states that wanted things in terms of vigilance and databases. And then you see that in the end you come up with this MDR and IVDR that that are a mix of basically what everybody wants. It was really there were some. Um, I would say really defining moments in the uh, legislative history where first the um, uh, the Estonian presidency, if I remember correctly, managed managed to uh, to to shunt the whole thing to the trilogue, and then the Dutch presidency that managed to uh, get um, finally get agreement in the trilogue. And I think those were actually Herculean feats, more or less, because people were so incredibly divided about what the uh, what the uh, regulation uh, should look like yeah and and as uh, as you said so we had i think when did it start again it was 2012 i think or 2013 can't remember exactly 2012 the uh, mdr proposal and the ivdr proposal were made by the commission uh september 2012 uh, okay. But before that time, they were the commission was already working on a pretty modest midlife update of both of the directives. But when these these two, yeah, very politicized uh, scandals hit the market, they had to really scramble to uh, to uh, to do something else. But but many uh, so 2012 started so. If I, if I remember how many uh, how long it takes for presidency so it's six months or one year for uh, because in the European Union it's like we are turning the presidency of the European Union so uh, we had started 2012 uh, then we finalized 2017 it means nearly uh, five years times two so ten presidencies is it that is correct That's correct yeah. So, and I think each presidency has his own objectives, his own thing. So it was not like focused on this regulation or doing that. It was maybe an urgency at the beginning, but I, I suppose that at the end it was more like, um, yeah, not not a priority first. Yeah, some presidencies had more of a focus on this uh, than others. And also, I mean, uh, while this whole uh, MDR thing was going on, we also had this enormous economic crisis with uh, Greece in a lethal tailspin as a country. We had Portugal and Ireland that were climbing out of a recession. So, yeah, a lot of these presidency, presidencies also had uh, bigger fish to fry uh, politically, uh, you could say. Great. And um, the this also was the reason for all this late, if I can say, or the delay for uh, releasing this regulation. It's a normal process. The five years is normal, if I can say, to have that. Um, well, I would say that it's it's for uh, uh, it's quite a long time for a, for a European law to uh, to come into being. But on the other hand. 
what we shouldn't forget is these were regulations and what the commission yeah. tried what the commission really tried to do with these two regulations is to uh, get a lot more power than it used to have under the directives so yeah, just can you can you make the uh, big, i know the difference but can you maybe explain just the difference for for people that don't know exactly what's the difference between a directive and a regulation of course Yeah, because currently, uh, currently we have uh, directives, and the way it works with uh, directives is that they are uh, basically, let's say, a sort of legislative template. So the the the, the treaty on functioning of EU says, uh, if there's a directive, then a member state has to do what is necessary to achieve the effects prescribed in the directive. So basically, it says, okay, here is what you need to do. But you can write it up in whichever way you like in your own national law. Okay. So with the and and that has with the medical devices directives uh, led to yeah interesting situations sometimes where me, where member states uh, yeah didn't copy definitions from the directives uh, correctly. That's something that the Netherlands, for example, did or. Uh, They made dynamic references to the annexes of the directives. Um, regulation, a regulation is really it's it's a uh, it's a top-down, directly effective legislative instrument. So it's basically like a European law. A directive first doesn't have its own uh, uh, effect vis-à-vis -vis private parties, but a regulation does. It's like a law that comes directly from Brussels. And member states are not to allowed to do anything to uh, amend it or implement it except what is specifically um, specified in the regulation that they can do. So, for example, uh, the regulation says member states can uh, set their own uh, their own uh, rules for uh, costs related to uh, surveillance of. Uh, so, for example, if you want to uh, request a single registration number, then the member state can decide their own fee for that. That's, okay. That follows from that. But the text, they have to copy past the text, if I can say, to their their law, if I can say. They, they cannot change anything. Well, they're actually not even allowed to copy-paste it because it or it's already in force uh, in their language. So, it's, it's already part of their legal uh, order. Okay. Oh, that's great. Um, so, okay, um, now we have um, passed, if I can say, those five years with all the discussion. As you mentioned, this was kind of a puzzle of requirements for many countries at the end. So do you think this is a, a coherent puzzle, if I can say? Do you think the text is really... Because when I read the text, I have to read it 10 times, even more, to really understand it, or have to come back to it to understand again the, some sentences. So sometimes it was really difficult when I when I look to the MDD, which was, for me, a bit more structured, if I can say. Now you, you go to an article, it asks you to go to another article and to go to another annex and to go to an article again. So it's like a bit difficult. But how do you see it? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty systematic, but it takes takes some time to uh, to understand how it works. What you can see also is uh, it it started out quite systematically uh, with the commission proposal. That was pretty logical, because basically what the commission did was they took uh, the directives, they took all the good stuff in the directives, 
then they added the uh, uh, the goods uh, legislation from the blue guide, uh, the whole economic yeah. operator regime. Sure. Then they uh, then they thought, ah shit, but uh, everybody is uh, is is uh, completely uh, going uh, apeshit over these uh, high risk devices. So we need some European level thing for that. So they started out with the scrutiny procedure, which in the end. Uh, got sort of politically derailed, and then they thought, okay, but if we call it differently, then it's uh, then it's maybe more acceptable. So we call it the clinical evaluation consultation procedure. And if we sell it well enough by saying to everybody all the time that it's a swift procedure, even if it's totally not, then uh, we can sell it politically. And then what else did they do? Well, of course, they tried to uh, solve a lot of other problems, like, for example, um, for example, uh, get the um, uh, uh, yeah the non-medical devices in. Yeah. They did a lot of uh, stuff in classification. And also what you see is I agree that the text is not always very systematical and not always completely clear, which is typically what you get if you have a commission, a European parliament and 28 member states that have something to say about this. So uh, a, a very good friend of mine that uh, that used to be uh, used to be uh, sitting in council meetings uh, for uh, for one of the member states uh, where they uh, uh, where they were negotiating about this kind of stuff. She would always say, well, you know, this is how European uh, lawmaking works, because what we would always do if uh, um, if we were in a situation uh, where uh, we couldn't agree about a particular uh, phrasing of the text, then we would just write it down in a way that everybody could interpret it the way they wanted. And then everybody was happy. <laughs> And this is a problem because when we read it, then I, I have my interpretation, the other have their interpretation, and you go to a notified body who has his own interpretation. So then this is a difficult yeah, phase, if I can say. Yeah, and that's also, uh, and that with the NDR and the IVDR, that's especially problematic because it, it, it does quite a lot of new things and also has a, a complex uh, transitional regime. And that that also brings me to this uh, to uh, to uh, the the blog post you refer to uh, the <laughs> transitional period, because in the end uh, the 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 NDR and the IVDR that they could agree on, those were uh, the um, the texts that were still quite open-ended. There was a lot of additional implementation uh, that had to be done, a lot of guidance that needed to de be developed. And I think the Commission and the Member States totally, utterly and completely underestimated how much work they still had to do to deliver a complete and functioning regulatory system. Uh, so yeah, I was telling um, mainly we have this transition period that is normally for uh, I mean, it was sold to us like it's a transition period for manufacturers. But yeah. for me, right, it's more transition period for notified bodies because as of today, we have, and we'll talk maybe about that, about we have only one notified body that was yeah officially uh, accredited for MDR. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so it means that manufacturers, even if they are want to put in place all what is required on the regulation, they cannot, if I can say. It's not like they, they don't want, they cannot. 
I agree, and that's 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 what I uh, often see, what I see all the time with a lot of my clients is that they say like, yeah, uh, we've done all we can do by now to to implement this stuff, but there are so many open questions that we can't really execute on our implementation because there are so many known unknowns. Uh, like for example, uh, interfacing specifications for Udemy. Yeah, if you're if you're an enormous multinational and need to uh, notify and they're going to wait with Udemy until the very last well what is it March uh, 2020 uh, until it until you can really use it yeah that is like asking for trouble yeah, and yeah. if you start a transitional period by saying uh, by by having no notified bodies um, designated uh, under the uh, under the uh, uh, MDR and the IVDR so it takes forever before people can make applications for certificates. Yeah, of course you are going to have the mother of all bottlenecks at the end. It's, it's, I mean, it's not rocket science. Oh my God, it was really a great talk with Eric. So uh, thank you, Eric, for that. Uh, we will still continue this talk next week. Uh, so uh, don't forget uh, to listen to it uh, and to follow that because next week also will be a really a great talk. Okay, so thank you very much, everyone. Uh, don't forget to keep learning, uh, to share this episode and share this podcast with your colleagues who want to learn medical device regulations and standards. And uh, I'll uh, see you on the next episode. Thank you very much and have a good day. <laughs>